0: Hi, and welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast. My name is Jason Brand, and this is Season 1, Episode 3. In this season, we're looking at the underlying theories that make up the psychobiological approach to couples therapy. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about trance, which is one of those underlying elements. First, we're going to be talking to Stan Tatkin. Stan is the creator of PACT, and he's going to be talking to us about trance, and then getting us set for the interview with Jeffrey Zeig. This particular episode, I think, speaks for itself in terms of you can listen and um, and it will be explanatory. For me, it was not an easy episode. I had a little trouble keeping up with the content, and to the point where I emailed my colleague Allison Howe and asked her if she could take a listen, and she said it made sense, and um, and so it makes me think that you know that part of this was my own learning curve about um, about following the ideas of trance. And perhaps I was in a bit of a trance state myself where I was um, outside of my procedural memory um, in terms of the ways that I handled these interviews and was having to think about this from a different place. And since the actual uh, interviews, I've done a bunch of re-listening and, um, and slowly the the concepts are are beginning to sink in. You might find that it clicks for you immediately. You might have to take more time with it, but um, there's a lot of good content here and I certainly hope you enjoy so without further ado, here is the podcast.
1: Hi, Stan. Hello. How are you?
2: Good.
0: Good to see you. So we're going to be talking about my interview with Jeff Zieg
1: and about trance.
0: So I thought I would start out with a question about uh, what's your history
1: with trance? Other than being in the trance? <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, it it um it it comes from quite honestly also my my own personal work because um there is a trance state involved in psychoanalysis and i've have uh, had two um, an, uh analyses in my life and uh, being on the couch and working with a good analyst uh, is a little bit like being in, in a trance working uh with um In psychodrama, psychodrama is in a sense, uh, trance work. Anytime you're, you're doing something in the implicit realm that's not all about declarative, uh, you know, uh, statements and meaning, um, or, you know, completely linear, anytime, uh, you get into, um, a place of play with others on the symbolic, metaphoric level, uh, there's uh there's a, a, you know trance work being done there um interactive regulation which we have people do face to face eye to eye also puts people uh into a kind of trance which is to say it opens them up and makes them available to suggestions makes them available good and bad suggestions by the way uh, makes them available to uh to be with each other uh in a in a way that is Um, golly, Um, uh, free from the constraints of normal verbal interaction, right? Um, You're suspending a kind of thinking, a kind of process. You're in flow, uh, something that musicians experience or actors experience, uh, people who are into improv or comics anybody who's doing anything that's in the realm of art um or performance is using a form of trance mm-hmm. right and uh, uh you know uh, street magicians uh who steal your wallet uh, mm-hmm. do sleight of hand are using a form of, of trance and suggestion redirection um ideas um that people sign on to um, uh, because the magician is, like I said, uh, making it important, to focusing on a particular thing. Uh, so psychodrama, very much even uh, gestalt work, when we do uh, empty chair work, which is not necessarily strictly gestalt, we use psychodrama um, in terms of object relations. We put the object or the self in the chair and allow the the patient to imagine that self or object representation by visually looking in the moment um, and getting a read on what um, is that face looking like, how is the affect of the person you're looking at, even for a flash of a second. Uh, And then we can see on the face and the body of the person who is imagining this, their um, their self-representation or the experience they're having of the object in that moment as if they're dealing with another real person in the chair instead of the representation of that person uh, mm-hmm. in and the chair, which, yeah.
0: And that's the, that's the element uh, of disbelief, of, of kind of removing it from reality and putting it into a different context.
1: Right. It's putting it into the implicit realm where you know where linearity is not necessarily uh, a key key issue um, it's more nonlinear it's more imaginative it's more uh symbolic um, it's circular it's uh and the therapist enters that realm with the patient in in playing in, sort of in this pretend imaginative world that's that's highly evocative in an emotional sense, right? You get a very strong emotional experience by looking at your dead father in the chair, and your first visual glimpse of him is he's looking very disappointed uh in you um and that experience um is live in the moment uh and uh and now we can deal with that, you know, internalized representation and the memory that goes with it. We're obviously not dealing with the real person. We're dealing with the, um, the mental idea of the person based on present state. So that's something Jeff talks about. You know, we're dealing with states when we're intruding on in, in procedural memory. We have to create the state in order to intrude on it. Otherwise, it's just talk. Mm-hmm. Um, so trance work is, uh, is basically action. It's live. It's improvisational. Um, Jeff used the word um, heuristic. Mm-hmm. And that's a word that fits with pact. That it isn't paint by numbers. You learn through the experience, through the moment, through the, uh, what you're doing. Uh, you make if-then changes, but it's within a structure.
2: Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Can you just define heuristic for people, so in case they don't know the word? Um, it, it's a way of thinking and learning by trial and error, but the trial and error is still within a structure, still within a basic structure. How you move within that structure is not necessarily linear. Again, um, it's based on on what's most important in the moment. Um, uh, and it's learning through doing. It's learning through, like I said, trial and error. It's improv. Um, that's a heuristic model. Okay. And the structure is what? Just so
0: that, I, just just so I can get this in my mind.
1: The structure is secure functioning. Uh, okay. We're trying to go for secure functioning, which is basically um, we're working with, um, you know, empathic resonance, uh, attunement, fairness. Um, Sensitivity, mutual sensitivity, basically, um, you know, everything we talk about in terms of interactive regulation in the moment, um, it's it's being fully present.
0: Uh huh. I like and that. The in ther- a-
1: and the therapist has to do that as well. In fact, if the therapist can't be fully present, then the therapist can't have this implicit resonance with the couple or the patient. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: That's no,
0: okay. The um, I, I liked how he talked about um, an adaptive, uh, an adaptive state about, and I was thinking about secure functioning as an adaptive state. The couples right. come in and they're not in an adaptive state, and we help them to be in this, be within this structure of secure functioning, which we're considering an adaptive state. Does that sound right? Right.
1: Yes, and one and one that we're making up because um, <clears throat> all of these realities, all of these narratives by themselves are not um, representations of everyone's reality. These are mythologies that we're creating a shared idea, a purpose, a container, Um, and as long as we can uh, sell that container, uh, you know, uh, and the other person believes in in what we are um, telling them is going to help, um, then we get them on board but make no mistake we're dealing with uh narratives which are being made up all the time um, the problem with a couple or patients that come in is that their their particular narratives have too many anomalies too many things that don't hold their experience and make them wonder uh about their uh their decisions you know if i break up then what uh, but what if this what if that so uh, so narratives are something that we're creating uh, or co-creating with patients and we're constantly shifting and changing them based on what we think is therapeutic and um, and fits with secure functioning. So we're orienting people mm-hmm. uh, in a way uh, we're orienting people um, and hopefully giving them a narrative that is uh, bigger, inclusive and more complex and offers You know, um, you know more than theirs, which is limiting and and exclusive.
0: And secure functioning is that is that narrative. That's the master narrative, and then there are other and then there are other narratives underneath. Or is that is that that that, that's the big that's the big picture? Is is secure functioning?
1: Well, secure functioning, but then beneath that are their agreements, are the principles that they believe in, and since we don't. Uh, we don't say what those principles should be. We can we can ask questions and imply that this is an area where it would be a really good idea if you guys were on the same page or you had a similar vision and you agreed. Um, so we're pointing them. But ultimately what they decide is their shared vision or their shared principles of governance is really up to them. Our job is to make sure that uh, whatever they agree on is truthful they're being honest and they're really thinking about it uh in terms of you know uh, whether that uh you know will really work um with if thens right uh it's being thoughtful it's uh it's co-creating it together it's you know uh forming it and uh modifying it as needed uh it's a collaboration but we're using these ideas and images to influence people, and some of it uh, is in the area of of a psychoeducation. But even the psychoeducation, you know, is is to form um, a, a sense of themselves and uh, why they're together. Um, you know, we we could be pitching for Satanism. <laughs> we could be pitching for religiosity or you know, any number of things, but we're choosing secure functioning, uh, and all of its, uh, you know, um, notions of fairness and justice and collaboration and cooperation. Okay.
0: Let's loop, let's loop trance back into this then. So, so if that's the, if that's sort of the work to be done and that's what we're selling for, that's what we're selling essentially. Um, why trance? Why, why would you put a couple into a trance state, um, in order to achieve that goal?
1: Well, um, you know, think of trances as a, um, as being um, relaxed but alert. There are sympathetic trances that are higher speed but still very focused. And then there are parasympathetic trances, which is, you know, what we tend to use when we go into a lover's pose or we put people face to, to face and we do the PAI, which, by the way, um, is another um, uh, trick that is uh that is is taking metaphor taking ideas focusing them into a story a narrative um <clears throat> and using you know the idea of memory as uh an intervention for one's um belief about their childhood you know whether it was really good or whether it was made up or whether it was filled in with blanks um uh you know i mean we're In that sense, we're being strategic. So, um, so when we, when we put people face to face and eye to eye, they become very focused. Um, there's a spotlight focus that, that engages in the frontal cortex that pushes other processes out. So there are certain areas of the brain that are not likely to be so active in these states because we might imagine hooking people up that, there are more um alpha and uh, delta and gamma um waves being produced than beta right so they're they're alert but they're not hyper alert in the waking sense um they're focused and that allows people to get into certain state dependent memory uh areas of memory where um where you can work with them you can, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, what is the surgery part, you know, where you're able to get in there and, and change ideas about the self, about the other, about history, um, coming up with compelling narratives and stories that can change um, how someone feels about themselves, can recast them in a way that normal state, you can't do that uh, because there's too much error correction. Error correction by the anterior cingulate or by the dorsolateral uh, prefrontal cortex, um, and this is much more of a uh, of a relaxed state that's more open and um, flexible and influencible. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Right. <laughs> uh, so it almost sounds like it's a way of kind of rewriting the story um, in a different in, in a different state which allows people to kind of lower their their usual uh defenses and then kind of feel feel um feel something that they wouldn't necessarily feel if their defenses were up i think that
1: that's right okay um and and we're using an experience uh, because they're in each other's eyes they're hyper focused that spotlight focus is meditative Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and because it's meditative um there's attention and concentration, but there's also uh, more equanimity, um, right, and the process of interactive regulation. It's like being held, um, or it is being held. And then you can then you can enter sort of a dreamlike state um, where of imagination where you can sort of co create um, new narratives. For instance, inner child work with uh, the partner on the bottom uh, toward the end of of uh, lovers pose, um, we might lead them there. So there's not a lot of resistance. You know, now you see your if it's a female. Now you see your eight year old daughter. Uh, she's in your in your lap lying on you. Can you see her even for a second? Can you see her? Hmm. See her face? Yes. All we need is that suspension of disbelief. It's just a momentary visual flash. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be consistent. As you look at her, how is she looking back at you? Is she happy? No, she's sad. As you see her, why is she sad? Now, we're always going to check with um, the the, the visual uh, object representation uh, with the change in state. So as the person you're working with, is changing we ask again how is this little girl looking now mm-hmm. because we assume that she's going to look differently according to the patient state uh, themselves right memory state and perception so um so when we do this and then we recast um this little girl from your daughter to now uh, can you see yourself at eight years old or six years old uh, even for a second, can you see that little girl? Even for a second, um, yes, I can. Is she sad too? Yes. Why? Um, would you tell her the same thing that you told your daughter in a moment ago? No. Why? I don't know. I I don't feel like it. Um, I I just don't. You know. And so we start to get um, uh, archaic relationships that are unchallenged. But are there um, in in one's own constant attitude towards oneself uh, and blaming uh, ourselves as children, as our parents, or we felt our our parents or other people blamed us, and that's what you know I I call it joining the Nazi party. Hmm. And so the therapist is leveraging this imagination state, uh, this you know these um, evocative memories. By transferring the feelings and the care and the empathy that we hope will be there for one's daughter um, and then moving it into oneself, Mm -hmm. uh, realizing there's going to be resistance. But this gives us the confrontive leverage to turn that person's ego dystonic distancing or repelling or aversiveness or attack on this self um, representation of uh, one young Turning it against itself, mm-hmm.
0: right? I'd imagine that we're collecting information within the trance that we might not actually use within the trance, and that yes, we absolutely right. And that we're going, oh, that that's something that needs to be looked out outside of a trance state, right? Yeah,
1: yes, and we can once we get the information; it's all usable. Mm-hmm. All of this stuff is usable. It's just used differently while the person is in this state. Because they're more malleable in this state than they will be when they come out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not able to uh, to make as much of the changes. We could, you know, trade out this idea of, you know, you know, pre-surgery, po- you know, surgery, post-surgery for working with an art uh, form, working with the medium that we have to heat in order to mold. And while it's heated, we can mold it. But once it cools, we can't. Right, We can comment on it, but we can't affect much uh, in that way. Not in the same way we can in the implicit realm. We've now and, moved more into the declarative realm.
0: And Jeff talked about um, the uh, limbic communication. Right. And so I think that this, you know, that sort of dovetails nicely with what you just said. Why Why is this limbic communication that we're talking about?
1: Because we're not dealing with the high left, um, which is the dorsolateral. lateral. Uh, prefrontal cortex. We're not dealing um, with logic or prediction or rotating objects in our head. Um, <laughs> or right, uh, the, the the critical faculties are disconnected in favor of imagination, like being in a movie. It's emotion-driven, limbic-driven, and so um, so. Uh, This is what we do in most of life, right? We're um, we're driven by and affected by um, these um, limbic experiences that are are like being involved in a movie, where we're not witnessing, we're not watching, we're part of, and therefore we feel compelled to act and react in a certain way. We're in the drama. Here, we're putting them in a different kind of drama and having them also observe themselves, right? We're observing, they're observing. There's commentary. Um, and so um, limbic, you know, resonance here or limbic communication, uh, Alan Shore might say, we're working right brain to right brain, mm-hmm. um, his version of limbic communication. Um, we're, we're dealing with um, um, the dreamlike metaphor, symbolic world. And um, Um, and resonating with it and talking with it as we sort of um, work collaboratively, right? So um, Erickson did a lot of interventions, not by saying things that were the interventions that we often use in psychotherapy, but by doing certain things to have an impact and effect by using imagery, by using ideas. He would gather ideas um, that... Um, you know, that were important to this person, images, memories could be numbers, it could be objects, it could be whatever. And he weaves that into his language. Um, But he's affecting them also with his relationship. So one story, I'll probably mangle it, is um, as a physician, he was asked to come to help this uh, mother with her little girl, who during adolescence was um, very self- conscious and wouldn't go out and uh, was afraid that um, that she had you know really big feet and was too gawky, so he came and um, under the auspices of being the uh, the mother's physician there for the mother and enlisted the daughter to be a helper. All of this was um, strategic, none of it was um, you know digital it was not talked about. The daughter did not know that he was there for her. Hmm. And so um, whilst she was, uh, the daughter was assisting him, he stomped on her foot hard, um, which caused a yelp. And he got angry and he says, if your feet were so goddamn small, I might've seen them. (laughs) Uh Now Erickson didn't care to, uh to fix that or to change it or to explain um, he, he went right in to uh to more limbic unconscious processes to change her thought ideas about herself about her foot yeah you could say it was kind of harsh and maybe a little unkind but um, but it's from you know Erikson's point of view quite loving and that's just one of many uh examples of Erikson having an effect even on couples um where uh, unless you knew what he was doing you couldn't really see uh his sleight of hand right because uh he was trying to have an impact
0: yeah and that, and that, so that there's, impact. there's two parts here one is that you started talking about but we didn't but i i interrupted you which is the role of the of the therapist here in in the trans state and then um the the other is the strategic part, and how trance is a very strategic form of therapy, yes. and um, and and how do those can two be can be yeah. can be can be and how do those two fit into um, your conceptualization of how trance fits into the pact?
1: Well, it can be strategic, like with the PAI, like with some of the some of the manipulations we're doing when they're face to face, eye to eye, and we're moving very slowly. And certainly in, in things like the Lovers Pose, um, very much so. But not necessarily when we put them face to face and eye to eye. That in and of itself puts them into a trance state we might call co-regulation. Um but but it's not just co-regulation, it's uh it's at lower parasympathetic states where uh, certain affects um lie, like quiet love. Um Uh, concentration, um, uh, contemplation, right? Sadness, grief, regret, all of these things, shame, uh, depression, you know, and that's where we're working, but we don't necessarily have to do much um, to mess with that. It kind of does it itself. And when they're talking with each other and we're just making sure that they're operating at this pace, right? Kind of a metronome at a certain click speed. Mm -hmm. Um, that keeps them there and their talk is different. Hey, what about the ball throwing exercise where a couple is, uh, they're throwing, partners are throwing a Nerf ball back and forth at a certain speed set by the therapist. The therapist is simply making sure that they don't hold the ball, that the ball stays at the same speed, um, and that they simply, uh, play catch, right? And then talk, right? The therapist is saying, "Okay, now talk about this matter of the kids, or religion, or sex, or whatever." That is facilitating an openness between partners that unlocks the, uh, areas of their brain that are too uh, self-conscious, too too uh, performative, uh, too uh, restricting, inhibiting, and uh, and all over themselves. In terms of uh, predicting errors, right? Predicting mistakes. That's disconnected by the, 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 the throwing the ball back and forth in a rhythmic way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I guess you could call that kind of strategic. Um, you know, we're kind of playing a trick here that disconnects certain parts of the brain, mm-hmm. so they they can be more free flowing and open.
0: And, and can you talk a little about the role of the therapist? So, in in both the more strategic and and the kind of more free flowing, um, what what is what 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 does the therapist need to be looking for inside themselves and um and, and in order to be in order to in 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 order to create a trance state for some for a couple?
1: That's a great question. The therapist has to have control over um, their own state of mind. Uh, to to be able to shift their state downward, to be able to enter this realm of imagination, of trance, of dreamlike state, um, so that we're all in it together. You know, um, if the therapist can't enter these states as well, then the the couple is not going to do that. Um, If the therapist is still engaged in performative uh, ideas, where they're locked up and frozen and not able to feel, um, sense what's going on. They're thinking too much. They're too self-referential. Then that isn't going to help at all with inner subjectivity, with uh, limbic resonance or limbic communication. Um, they're not going to be able to do it. They're going to be too much in their head, and uh, and that's um, you know they they they're not going to be able to play from outside of this this um, realm. So um, the therapist has to be able to touch into, tap into their own implicit um, sensibilities to sit close, very close to a patient or to the partners to get into this intersubjective resonance to play in this uh, this field, which is definitely not cognitive, definitely not, um, you know, linear a nonlinear world. Um, and uh, to the degree that the, the therapist can go, there's the, the degree to which uh, their patient can go. Right. OK, great. And uh, and the therapist, is, if not there in is thinking too much is too self-referential or afraid, um, <clears throat> there, uh, there will be a lot of mistakes, a lot of errors. And some of them could <clears throat> turn out to be um, uh, felt as uh, unempathic, mm-hmm. right, misattuned. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- this is this is um, both a therapist and couple are supposed to be in the same place. hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, coll- it's a collaboration.
0: And and would you Jeff had this nice thing about uh, stretching people from the inside? Would you say that um, secure functioning stretches couples from the inside? Is that is that kind of what we're what we're doing?
1: I think the um, the having to meet standards of secure functioning requires stretching from the inside. I'm not sure that people that it uh, in and of itself is doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the struggles to be secure functioning um, are going to meet uh, challenges, developmental challenges, cognitive challenges, challenges of resistance and defense which have to be melted uh, away, um, uh, you know, in therapy in order to get past that, in order to experience something outside of what um, uh, partners feel is normal, right? Um, uh, that they're relaxed enough to experience something beyond what they're accustomed to uh, in a manner that's safe.
3: Mhm okay and, uh, so
1: getting there is is really the domain of the therapist and uh-huh. the therapists a, a skill in art
0: uh-huh. and art uh, and any other thoughts reflections on on the interview with Jeff that you want to share before we stop
1: you know i've grown to feel uh, to be so appreciative of Jeff um, and and his um, his um, don't know mind Set when he's still experimenting with ideas and playing with stuff um, just to see what could work, what wouldn't work, all playing with implicit kind of, uh, you know, trickery, um, using words and phrases differently than uh, we might use. Um, uh, th- there are lots of ways he does this. And I really appreciate um, his wanting to meet people in this in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what he was so uh, in love with in terms of uh, um, in terms of Erickson. And, Eric, you know, they're not the only people who do stuff like this. Um, a lot of people write about it, um, but they themselves can't do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it is being willing to play in a d- in a different playground um, that is not as direct um, Uh, as uh, some people would like to work, certainly not at all like CBT. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, it's not like psychoanalysis. Uh, It's not like behavioral therapy. Um, But it does involve things that, you know, that um, I understand his roots are in Rogers. I can tell that um, from Rogers we get to Pearls. Um, And we also, um, you know, have uh, Gregory Bateson and uh, systems thinking, uh, field theory, which we're going to get to when we talk about Gestalt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of this beautifully, um, you know, weaves uh, together. Um, and uh, and it's just a different way of thinking um, about, uh, um, you know, human behavior and human suffering. The other thing I love about Jeff and what he's doing is he is taking um, borrowing from the arts, from music, from mm-hmm. dance, from the classics, uh, from literature—you um, know, much in the way uh, union uh, analysts, have yeah, you referenced
3: known, that, yeah,
1: have been known to do.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: this speaks to what I've been telling people, and that is, um, increasing our fund of knowledge isn't simply taking new courses in our field of interest, right? And to, you know, going to other masters of, of therapy. To learn this or that. It's going outside of the box. It's, you know, learning about zoology, learning about astronomy, learning about um, magicians, learning about criminals, learning about how they do things. Um, you know, all of this adds to our fund of knowledge and our understanding of people um, uh, and give us, you know, new and inventive ways of, of working and influencing and persuading our patients and pointing them. So. Great.
0: Well, let's wrap up this one. And, uh, and I really appreciate the time, Stan, and um, I'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you. Recording here. Okay. Um, so anything before we jump in, anything I should know? or? Uh,
3: when my mother's favorite son. <laughs> we,
0: we share that in common. I'm her only son, so. (laughs) We share that in common as well. Um, All right, so uh, welcome to the Pack Street Podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Jeffrey Zieg. Uh, Jeffrey Zieg is the founder and director of the Milton Erickson Foundation. Um, He has co-edited and authored or co-authored more than 20 books that appear in 12 uh, foreign languages. Uh, He is the architect of the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference, considered the most important conference in the History of Psychotherapy, sometimes called the Woodstock of Psychotherapy. He organizes the Brief Therapy Conferences, Couples Conference, International Conference, conference on Ericksonian Approaches. Uh, he conducts workshops all over the world, uh, and he's the president of Zeig, Tucker, and Theusen, uh the publisher of uh, Behavioral Science, um, tons of books, great books that I highly recommend. Um, and it is a real genuine pleasure to have you here today, uh, Jeffrey.
3: Now that you've mentioned all of those things, I'm exhausted. Uh, when I think of all those things that I do, now I'm too exhausted to do the. <laughs>
0: all right. Well, let's leave it here then. Um, the uh, well, yeah, no, it's a, it's a list that it does. You go. Wow. How is how is how's that how is that possible?
3: Well, it's possible because I have a very efficient team that helps me and. Uh, like you probably, I was gifted by my mother with a lot of energy.
0: <laughs> That's, I think that is true, uh, for me too. And, uh, today we are, uh, I'm really excited to have you here. We're going to discuss trance mm-hmm. and hypnosis. And, uh, the Pack Street podcast takes, the street stands for special topics. And so we take, uh, the nine elements that make up Pack therapy, um, and we look a little bit more deeply at what, at, at, the elements and trance is one of those important elements mm-hmm. uh, and in a lot of ways you know thinking about today getting prepared for today trance is really at the heart of where we want to be as fact therapists in terms of um, eliciting uh, change from the couple and from um, you know it's kind of the state that we really go for and that we really um, aim to help our couples to be in um, to explore their couple dynamic. Um, and so I'm excited today um, to get your insights into the trance state. Sure. Um, and it, I mean, it, it's, it, it's powerful stuff, trance. And I was wondering, you've been, you, you were exposed and, and introduced to trance at a young age. What was it like um, at that age to be introduced to trance?
3: Well, to be introduced to hypnosis was before I met Milton Erickson, and I had a supervisor, psychiatric supervisor, in my master's program. I had a placement at a residential treatment center hospital inpatient unit, and he, uh, Dr. O'Connor, was um, kind enough to accede to my request that he would teach me hypnosis, but what he didn't do, what he did do, was not what I expected. I thought he was going to, this was going to be an academic enterprise and he said, come to my office on Saturday morning, I'll hypnotize you. I went, mm-hmm. because I had all these misconceptions about what hypnosis was. So I was scared, I was nervous and I'm drumming my fingers on Saturday morning sitting in the chair uh, before he was going to launch into this induction. And he said, watch your fingers and pay attention to the rhythm and notice the movements and notice how the rhythm changes and notice the touch and the sensations and notice the, how that slows down. And this fascinated me because I didn't have a word for it, but it was the inter- underpinning of all of Erickson's work, which is utilization being response ready, ready to respond constructively to whatever exists in the totality of the situation. So I said to him, well, what can I read? And he said, read Milton Erickson. I said, who?
2: Hmm. He
3: said, Milton Erickson. And there was only one book, which was a compendium of his papers that was edited by Jay Haley. And I, it was very expensive. I didn't have any money, but I ordered the book and I went, whoa because this was light years beyond anything that I conceptualized the psychotherapy, was before the book Uncommon Therapy came out. So my understandings of trance at that time were based on what I was learning, which was a semi-traditional approach to hypnosis uh, based on using an induction to help somebody to alter their state, usually a scripted induction, a formalized induction, And then I was 26 years old when I visited Milton Erickson for the first time in Phoenix, December of 1973. And his, I thought I was going and he was going to be like any other teacher that I had. And he was going to teach me how do you do reframing, because that was something new at the time. How do you use uh, induction? How do you use the confusion technique, the interspersal technique? Things he was famous for inventing. And that wasn't the case. Hmm. And basically, Dr. Erickson Erickson was in the people building business. And he was, if you wanted to learn about a technique, you could read what he wrote. He was a very good writer. But in an interpersonal situation, he was in the people building business. And by virtue of my connection with him, I was going to be a better Jeff Zide, And it wasn't a matter of being able to do therapy in a more expert way. And uh, so being with Erickson felt like being stretched from the inside, developing who you would be, not how what you would do.
0: Hmm. What what, do you remember your first impressions of him when you saw him?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I I arrived. I I was somehow I didn't even know how it was arranged. I was going to be his house guest. Now, my cousin um, was a friend of one of his daughters. Okay. And so that served as an in- introduction to me, and I sent out Derrickson a paper that I had written about using uh, his utilization techniques to help to uh, ameliorate auditory hallucinations in schizophrenic patients. I was working at the time, uh, I thought I was in love with schizophrenia, and I thought I would work at mental hospitals for the rest of my life. and yeah. I sent him a preprint and said, can I please be your student? And he wrote me back a letter and said, no. He said he wasn't taking students, but it was a beautifully crafted letter and I must have read it 15 times. And he personalized the letter to an admiring student saying, don't pay attention to the technique, the pattern, the wording of suggestions. The really important thing is motivation for change and the fact that no human being ever fully knows his own capabilities. Now, I must have sat in my car, Green Volkswagen, and read that 15 times. I was stunned. Hmm. And I said, OK, I don't need to be a student. Can I just visit? So then I showed up. And I arrived late and I was embarrassed because I was going to be his house guest and I was getting there at like ten or ten thirty at night and I knocked on the door and his daughter, who I had met maybe three years before when I had been visiting my cousin, greeted me at the door. She said, This is Dr. Erickson and he was sitting to my immediate left wearing purple. <laughs>
2: now
3: um, Doctor Erickson was colorblind, so purple was the color he appreciated most, but Uh, At the time that I met him, it's a slight exaggeration to say, but he was quadriplegic, slight exaggeration. He could hardly use his legs, and he had more mobility in his left arm, but sometimes to use his right arm, like to eat, he would have to use his body to bring the spoon to his mouth, and to write, sometimes he'd have to guide his right hand with his left hand. Uh, This is from post-polio syndrome, so the family invented we could say, purple leisure suit, somewhat like purple pajamas. How could you dress him more easily? Mm. So mm. He could wear street clothes. So he's in purple to my immediate left, and Roxana says, this is my father, Dr. Erickson, and Erickson does this.
0: Just slowly looks up at you. Wow. Uh, uh,
3: the mechanics of that, uh, I could intuit now, but... Um, I was stunned. Nobody had ever said hello to me like that before. And Roxana took me into the next room and said that her father was a practical joker, but it wasn't a practical joke. It was a complete induction of hypnosis. So in the hypnotic state, people often have a ratcheting movement, like they're doing an arm levitation and a series of cogwheeling movements. And what he did was to fix my attention. He took me out of my pattern of saying hello to somebody Probably when he saw me, he probably defocused his eyes. Maybe he timed my breathing, looked down the midline of my body, suggesting go down inside.
0: Uh-huh.
3: Now, I traveled intermittently to Phoenix from 1973 to 1978 when I moved here to be closer to Erickson. And I followed him closely. And he never did that again. Huh. So the principles of how do you create an alteration in state were so embedded inside him that he didn't need to have a script or a formal procedure. He could just invent the moment because Erickson was basically a conceptual communicator interpersonally. Writing, he would write facts, but in an interpersonal situation, more often than not, he was a conceptual communicator. Now concepts, one one way of looking at psychotherapy is to say that somebody is stuck in an, in a conceptual reality that doesn't help them to be effective, adaptive in their life.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And so one of the things that we want to do is to help people to get concepts, and those concepts can transform into states, and those states can transform into adaptive identities. Mm-hmm. So um, Erickson was using hypnosis, which is basically an experiential methodology. You don't give people information in a trance, not didactic information. You don't explain a formula to somebody. The idea of trance is that it's an evocative experience that helps you to realize a concept, change a state, alter an identity. So um, hypnosis is the mother of experiential approaches to psychotherapy, and there are experiential approaches within PACT and experiential approaches within CBT, Uh, uh, but Erickson was the most radically experiential therapist, that therapy is going to happen by virtue of the experiences that you live and not by virtue of the information that you get.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And there's there's this idea that I've been trying to articulate that I'm hoping you can help me with, which is that... Erickson's impact on psychotherapy has been a lot like hypnosis. Yes. And can, can, do, can, you, can you expand on that?
3: Um, yes. Let's say what I said, that hypnosis is just one experiential method. Now, probably in my practice, maybe I use hypnosis, formal hypnosis, 5% of the time, 10% of the time, but 100% of the time, I use hypnosis-derived methods as ways of making communication more vivid and experiential. And that could be using metaphor, storytelling. Um, It could be using mildly destabilizing techniques. But basically, what I'm doing is not much different than what Steven Spielberg would do or Shakespeare would do um, or Chekhov would do or Wagner would do. The evocative world exists within art. And unfortunately, therapists don't spend time examining the grammar of being evocative. My gosh, if you can get the patient from point A to point B with information, please do it. Mm. But if you say to a depressed person, cheer up, it's a beautiful day, the sun is shining, go out and enjoy it, that direct suggestion is not going to help that person to transform their conceptual realities or their state. So from hypnosis, we learn evocative forms of communication that can then be used without the necessity of a formal trance.
0: Mm -hmm. And, and you're doing this in all kinds of ways. I attended the, um, the introduction foundation uh, level one down in Arizona. And I mean, you're doing it in terms of the process of being with someone you're doing it in the language you use you're doing it in watching the movements i mean this is happening on so many different layers and levels that's right let's just let's just pick one can you talk about the process a little bit of somebody comes into your office and you're you're taking them you're seeing that you're you're seeing it as as something that unfolds yes and what, what can you can you kind of step us through what 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 are you generally looking for in terms of that process unfolding?
3: Well, if I had any talent uh, uh, I would toy with being the screenwriter, right? so you you if you go back to Aristotle, you have a dramatic arc, and the therapy can be a dramatic arc so that therapy can be conceived as a symbolic drama of change, the imperative of which is by living this drama you will be different. Now that requires doing things that a screenwriter would do, which is set up payoff. So if the if the movie opens and you're looking at an ashtray as the movie opens, everything in the movie has to advance the story. You don't have irrelevant scenes. It's a very precise art form, and the people who are the best artists are the most precise. So every element builds towards a denouement, and then there's a resolution. And so process in therapy is a a strategic development. Now, if you were a composer and you had a theme, one, two, three down, Beethoven, Fifth Symphony, then you would strategically develop that theme over the course of the symphony, and you would learn about strategic development. If you were um, uh, 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 writing a poem, you would learn about strategic development. Every poem should start, as Robert Frost said, the poem should enter with delight and exit with wisdom. (laughs) If you're thinking about uh, writing a play, there has to be strategic development that takes you through a series of steps to get to the climax. But basically, if you're playing golf or tennis, you're doing the same thing. (laughs) You know, the power of of the the movement in golf or tennis is not the moment that the racket or the club hits the ball. It's how you set up and how you follow through that determines the power. Now, when I started doing therapy, I was Rogerian and I was speaking staccato, interchangeable empathic reflections. If the person said, I'm sad, I said, you seem down. If the person said, I'm down, I said, you seem sad. And it was staccato. But then when I saw Erickson and he was communicating in both on a microdynamic level and through the course of a session, and it was set up, set up, set up, intervene, follow through, or pre-suggest, suggest, post-suggest, or enter, offer, exit. Well, come on, we've seen this tens of thousands of times in a movie. The microdynamics of a movie. If the the director wants you to be in the plane, there's an establishing shot. You see a plane. You're inside the plane. And then the music trails you off into the next scene. So uh, if I compare Erickson to Aaron Beck or or maybe Albert Ellis, I, I fail. But if I compare Erickson to Steven Spielberg or Beethoven, Or Thomas Mann, the great novelist, I I succeed because the elements of evocative grammar that exist across the arts are also um, prevalent in Erickson because art is about being evocative. You don't go to the movie because you want information. You go to the movie because you want to change your state. And so the mechanics of uh, of what a movie maker does and the mechanics of what an Ericksonian-trained hypnotist do have decided similarities. Mm-hmm. Now that's just being strategic. Now what you were saying, I want to place in context because I, I like what you were saying. This is about density.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: It's about making the communication as dense as possible and the sign of a master is one. So making the communication dense, only one one part of that is to use strategic development, but that's only one way of increasing the density of the communication. Why is Quentin Tarantino a great director? Oops, Steven Spielberg? Well, the density of what they're capable of doing with their medium is so great that if you watch the movie five or seven times, you still don't understand all of the elements that they have put in to, to make creating an evocative experience that's transformative to you.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that's what, I mean, you know, just reflecting on my own experience with therapy and it, the, you, you pull a thread out of that that, that somehow speaks to you as the consumer of therapy it, there's a thread that you pull out that you go god that speaks to me in a way that i've never heard anybody express that before yes
2: uh-huh
0: yeah got it yeah mm-hmm. okay so let's um i want to i was hoping i could walk through a packed session with you a little bit and if mm-hmm. you could talk a little bit about sort of the the mind how somebody how how from a hypnosis perspective what you're seeing
3: I am glad to do my best. Okay. I love Stan Tatkin and Tracy, and uh, I, you know, rely on them heavily to speak at Erickson Foundation meetings. So I'm conversant, but I'm not expert. And uh, good therapy is good therapy. So uh-huh. there's always unique. So uniquenesses and similarities between therapy and when I organize the evolution conference, it's an attempt to find the consilience. What are the commonalities that makes therapy work? Um, And yes, we can compare and contrast. Uh, I don't know where that can get us, but I'll do my best.
0: Okay, great. I appreciate your willingness. And okay, so let's just, so you walk into the, the waiting room of your office and a couple's sitting there and you get this immediate hit. Of something I mean and, and so what what from a hip from a hypnotic from a hypnosis point of view what it what are you thinking at that first introduction
3: well it's not I'm not even thinking from a hypnotic point of view uh, I'm just watching to see if I can understand patterns how what is the relationship pattern that this couple has that has become crystallized in the life of this couple. And so this is a microdynamic moment. And that may be an indicator of, uh, of a pattern, a pattern of being overly enmeshed or a pattern of being overly differentiated. Just for example, a pattern of uh, pursuing or a pattern of distancing. So it's just, you know, the, when you see somebody like Virginia Satir or Minuchin or Carl Whitaker, these are people who are, they got the pattern. And therapy starts before the patient gets into the office, before they get into the waiting room. You've already had some contact and you want the therapeutic process. Not, the therapeutic process doesn't stop, start after the induction. It starts uh, using the Beethoven principle bum bum um, one, two, three, down, jump into action, so um I, you know there, there might be something I could say that would be relevant to therapeutic while the client is in the waiting room. I'm not waiting for an assessment
0: mhm and so can can you just distinguish what's the difference between the pattern that you're seeing, which I totally get, and you're, you it sounds like you're differentiating that differentiating that out from hypnosis am i am I oh. hearing that right, yeah.
3: Well, you know, let's forget about hypnosis and because it clouds the issue. Okay. The, the the more prevalent issue is that people can get trapped in unadaptive states, like being unmotivated, irresponsible, distant, uh, confused, um, um, overly uh, involved in their private world rather than being leaving room for the relational world. So people get into into unadaptive states. Now, if you apply a neutral induction of hypnosis, just one that you would memorize from a textbook, and the person responds, you're demonstrating to the person, you can change your state. So when the patient comes in, it's like the patient is in reverse. They're withdrawn, they're restricted, they don't have use of their of all of their perceptual motor behavior, and when you do a hypnotic induction, even a simple one, and the person goes into neutral, you're demonstrating to the person, you can change your state. Now, that's not getting them into first, second, third, or fourth gear, but if you have a standard shift car, the only way to get into first gear from reverse is to go through neutral.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Right,
3: hypnosis demonstrates to the person, and that may be systemically significant. You're not locked into your state of anxiety, depression, bad relationship, bad habit. You can change your state. Whether or not that's systemically significant depends on on the situation. So I'm not thinking about apply hypnosis.
0: Uh-huh. I'm
3: thinking, what is the concept that the client, that the system needs to realize? And what, how can I create an evocative experience that gets to what you were talking about—an aha moment?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, then, great. So that, that that helps me a lot because we'll fast forward. I mean, so a couple comes in. They're more in a. Yeah, they're in the rolling chairs, uh, which you know, which is a part of the pack nope. technique, and they're facing the therapist to begin with, and the therapist is sort of just getting the lay of the land. Mm-hmm. from from you know the couple and it sounds like you know you're pretty much trying to figure out well what's the pattern here in terms of how they're relating to each other how they relate to the world around them how are they relating to me and how am i going to utilize this at some point to and and you would and and you would say to create an evocative how am i going to evoke something that's going to help them to change Does that sound right okay. Right. Okay. Great. So then, at a certain point, you ask them to turn towards each other, and okay. this is this is the sort of the beginning, I think, uh, in impact of, of a light trance state. Um, and could, what do you think about the idea of having two people about trance with a couple, having people look at each other? Do, do, does that what do you, What do you think about what is that? No. What's going on there? It,
3: it, you know, it's a, a rare thing. And like if uh, if, if it, uh, I've been doing this probably 50 years so after I graduated from uh, college, I was working with psychiatric patients as psychiatric orderly. So I've been doing this for 50 years, um, not as a therapist, but, but working in psychiatry. In 50 years, I've never heard anybody speak for any appreciable amount of time in the present tense.
2: Hmm.
3: We're all talking about the horrors and glories of the past or the horrors and glories of the future. And if you bring somebody into the present tense and you make them present, really looking at another person and being intently aware, that is a remarkable alteration in state. And that kind of intimacy doesn't happen very often through our day. So you're creating an immediately evocative experience. Now, if you want to call that trance, or if you want to call that being in the moment, this is up to you to how you tab that. But let's find a, a ways of creating a title that has heuristic value. So if the if the title can propel us into a more adaptive future, that's great. Now that moment of looking towards each other. It could be called trance and it could be called, um, I don't know what you would call it, impact, but Mnuchin might call that um, an enactment where, especially in a family therapy situation where you have a dyad, a subsystem, and they start to talk to each other in more intimate terms in front of their extended family, that in itself can be a therapeutic moment just because it's out of the box. It doesn't normally happen.
0: Mhm. Mhm. Okay, and in terms of language when you're when you're getting people settled into uh into a trance, what sh- what should you be looking for in terms of language or what are some what are some language techniques that people might utilize?
3: Yeah. Well, I I wrote a, a book um the anatomy, anatomy of an intervention, which is available for Meltzer and Foundation Press. Great. And one of the, uh, or also I wrote a book, Hypnotic Induction, that's available through the Milton Erickson Foundation Press, and that's erickson-foundation.org. Now, in, in the induction book, I listed language forms that are commonly used by practitioners of hypnosis. And if you broke them down into their essentials, they would be truisms, we are here, We are talking, and there could be presuppositions. I don't know when you can realize evolving comfort. Do you? So then nested in that sentence is the concept of evolving comfort. It's just a matter of when, Hmm. right? So what we learn when we study hypnosis is to use a poetic grammar, of helping people to realize a concept. Now, if you want somebody to laugh, you can't say one, two, three, laugh. You, you tell them a joke and nested within that joke is a twist that allows somebody to elicit humor. So the language that we learn when we study fundamental hypnosis is an evocative grammar that is used to elicit a conceptual realization. But if you studied literature, you would learn how to create a compound sentence with free modifiers as a way of taking the concept that you want the reader to experience and seamlessly, invisibly help the reader to get that concept. If you were creating a movie, You would have uh, sound effects and settings and costume design and lighting and music and scripts. And you'd have a whole bunch of elements that would help somebody to get the felt sense of being in the future, Mm -hmm. right? So each art has a grammar, but as it turns out, there are similarities in grammar across arts. So the things that Picasso would do with painting are things that um, Leonard Bernstein would do with music, and you have limitations to each art, but in hypnosis, the language features are like, if you're going to be a poet, you have to learn how to use alliteration, and you have to learn how to use simile, and you have to learn how to use metaphor, and you learn have learn have, have, have to learn how to use or not use meter and and how to use or not use the formatting on the page. And these are part of the skill sets that are uh, the evocative language of each art. So in hypnosis, we learn an evocative language that is used to help people to realize concepts. But metaphor could be part of that and signification could be part of that. And using the tone, the tempo of your voice could be part of that. So more than in any other school or discipline of therapy, in hypnosis, studying hypnosis, we learn to use the entire palette that's available to us. And this was Erickson. He was explorer, an explorer. How could you use tone, tempo, the direction of voice, the speed of voice? How could you use these things to evoke, elicit effects? And so when we study hypnosis, we learn how to use our palette, the entire palette, all of the colors that we have, how to use proximity and posture and gesture and... Uh, metaphor and allusions, and so I think every therapist should learn hypnosis. I don't know that we need to spend the 45 years that I've been spending about mastering hypnosis, but hypnosis teaches you how to use communication to its maximum extent.
0: I think it's so cool. And I, I, you know, I I think a lot of people don't realize that this is out there and available to them. And that's one reason I was so excited to talk to you. The one other idea that I was hoping we could get at here is, um, so you're, you're helping a couple, um, be in the moment or a light trance state, whatever we're going to call it. And this is for for a lot of people, uh, this is hard to do. And they begin to kind of pop out of it. they look at you and they go, "Why is his voice changing? why is he utilizing it? Why, is he, why is he using all these you know different ways of talking and and his gestures all of a sudden seem different uh, and they and and one you might think of that as resistance, but I think within w- within your framework, you would talk about it in a different way um, as a utilization that you would use right. that so can you talk a little bit about about that
3: yes well utilization and there's youtube videos of me talking and demonstrating how i teach utilization but utilization is the opposite of psychological problems psychological problems are believed in limitations i don't believe that i can change or cope
2: Mm.
3: utilization is a philosophy of sufficiency whatever you have is sufficient so a classic case from Uncommon Therapy was a suicidal, depressed woman. And one of the things that she was most embarrassed about was the gap that she had between her teeth. So she came to Erikson for one last shot at life. And Erikson helped her to refurbish herself a little bit, found out that there was a man who often showed up at work who was at the water fountain, but they never talked. And Erickson suggested that she learn how to squirt water through the gap in her teeth (laughs) to a distance of one meter. She could be accurate. She doesn't know why she's doing this, but it's one last chance of life. And so she's following her doctor's orders. And then eventually Erickson gets around to the fact that the next time she goes to the water fountain and the man is there, she's to get a mouthful of water and squirt them and then run quickly in the opposite direction what (laughs) So she does and he runs after her he kisses her and The next day when she shows up at the water fountain with some trepidation He's hiding in a corner with a squirt gun and he squirts her (laughs) And then they start going out and she starts getting over her depression So to Erickson there was no there's no resistance there was just challenges to find something to utilize and if you had a gap in your teeth you could utilize that so the uh, you know Erickson added 300 different cases more than that to the literature on psychotherapy nobody will ever add that many cases but all of the cases were based in utilization being in the state of readiness to respond constructively to whatever existed and he lived it this was not a technique that he applied, this was an orientation that he lived. And so whatever problem he had, polio or being in a wheelchair, well, he found a way to use that too. Mm. So he was a living laboratory of this process of utilization, which was the way in which you could transcend adversity. Everybody will face adversity. And so for the last 45 years, I've been trying to practice staying in a utilization state. I don't have the skill sets of Ericsson to be able to find something to utilize in every situation. But I hope that, you know, when inevitably I get ill or have adversities, that rather than complaining about them, that I try to find, there's gotta be something to utilize here. There's gotta be some resource. If there's a pile of shit, there's gotta be a pony under there somewhere.
0: (laughs) It sounds like you, to this day, I mean, what year did Erickson die? Erickson died in
3: 1980, Okay, in
0: 1980. And to this day, it sounds like you're still pulling pearls of wisdom from your interactions with him.
3: Well, not, not only that, but we have an archive here in Phoenix and part of the work that we're doing at the Erickson Foundation is to stream. We have one of the most extensive archives of psychotherapy because we've been videotaping, audiotaping since 1980.
2: Hmm.
3: We have a couple of hundred hours of Milton Erickson. And so when I travel and teach, yeah, there's uh, lots of things that I teach that are Erickson related, but things that I've learned from Mnuchin, Satir, Bob and Mary Goulding, Irv Polster, and a lot of the other luminaries that I've been blessed to encounter and to study with. So I consider myself an integrative experiential therapist, but everybody has a style. And when I watch Erickson, and I do this all the time when I have the opportunity When I watch Erickson, I see things that I can replicate. And being strategic, utilization, using multi-level communication, orienting towards, developing acuity, being evocative, being experiential. These are things that resonate with me. Now, if you're more cognitive, study with Beck or Ellis and that will resonate with you. Um, But out of all of the therapists that I have seen, um, Erickson speaks more intensely to the skill sets that I have and want to develop inside myself. I happen to be a strategic thinker and uh, I, you know, as a pastime I play bridge and uh, that's a strategic game, whoever can think. Furthest ahead is probably going to win that hand. And uh, and bridge is based on using sig- a signal system to communicate. You only have a few words that you can say in the bidding process. And you can't use innuendo uh, or nonverbal behavior to indicate anything about the signal that you're given it has to be pure. And mostly we use cards to communicate um uh uh, patterns to our partner
2: Mm.
3: so 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 you don't have to be multiple level to to be a great therapist you don't have to be strategic you don't have to be metaphoric Uh, but these they don't have to explore the the palette of communication you can find things in schools and experts that resonate with you And uh, I'm not a handmaiden for Erickson, but I certainly still learn more from watching Erickson than I do from watching other therapists. I do a course that I love, which starts in January, which is the Masters of Psychotherapy Online. Mm -hmm. And we take a video from the Erickson Foundation archives and we discuss the methodology of the master so, like in January, we discuss Carl Rogers because I have a video of Carl Rogers from 1985 from the Evolution Conference, and I send this video to students, and they have a month to or weeks to look at that and to study what Rogers was doing. And then uh, an hour and a half once a month on a Friday, we go through. What is the essence of being an interchangeably empathic, and how could you dust that off and bring it into the 21st century? Hmm. We we discuss Masterson, we discuss Kernberg, we discuss Whitaker, we discuss Bob and Mary Goulding, Chloe Madonna, Circa Moreno, uh, Irv Polster, and uh, over the course of 12 months, we cover 14, 15 different therapists where we look for the commonalities that makes therapy work and not just uh extol a separate school so i am a consumer of expertise and i find expertise wherever i can it's just that for my personality and my way of being in the world erickson speaks most richly to
0: me mm-hmm. great the uh okay so we get a couple they settle into something happens where they kind of settle down into each other's, into being in the moment with each other.
2: Okay. And
0: we might, we, that is a good thing. And then we might consider that sort of they're open for, I I, I guess strategic, whatever strategic cues you've been picking up of where you want to go. And you have, you know, you have this window available to you to, really get some ideas across, um, concepts, yeah. concepts across to the couple while they're open this way. Let, let, I guess let's just start with what is that open moment? How do, how do you describe that open moment? What has happened to the couple or two people in that moment?
2: Well,
3: if you study the academic research in social psychology, you understand that People are designed by evolution to respond to cues. We are designed by evolution to respond to uh, physical and auditory signals. And these physical and auditory signals are evocative, but not necessarily informative, except that they're directional and they say move toward or move away. So limbic communication, a term that I like to use, is um, based on our evolutionary sociobiology, and social psychology demonstrates that we respond to innuendo to conformity to demand characteristics to authority, and all of the other areas emotional contagion priming um, attunement uh, all of um, social mimicry all of the other areas that are studied in social psychology this demonstrates that we respond to innuendo. So the purpose of a hypnotic induction is that the person is responding to meaning. Here is the level of information. Here is the level of meaning. And whatever we say has both informative and evocative value. And so a hypnotic induction is based in getting the person to respond to the the implied meaning of the communication. Once the person starts to respond to the implied meaning, the induction is over. If I say to somebody, let's move forward with that idea, they get the metaphor. But in trance, if I say a person can move forward with that idea and the person moves forward, and they are responding to the implicit meaning, at that moment the induction is over. So the induction primes the person to be responsive to meaning. And then when you follow and you tell a story or a metaphor or you use evocative forms of communication, basically you're asking the person to respond to meaning. Mm. A joke. The person responds to meaning, not to the content.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And and love, if you want somebody to love you, you can't say, I want you to love me. I'll give you four reasons for doing that. You have to do evocative things that prompts the person to respond to the meaning of your romantic gesture. And mm-hmm. so, so the idea of the induction is the person responds to meaning because the therapy is going to be based on for example, telling the metaphor about a house with a couple who's disengaged. And the metaphor is about how people are locked in their room and they're on their computer or they're on their electronic device. And suddenly, in a way that they can't understand, they get interested in having dinner together. And here's what happens in the interaction. Mm. Now, basically, uh, in that feeble metaphor you're suggesting that people can become more engaged rather than disengaged but the metaphor like we know from scientific research that the use of metaphor stimulates the amygdala in the way in which information doesn't Mm. and the amygdala is a relevance detector So we use metaphor once every eight words. If if you were a grammarian and you were trying to understand metaphor, Um, but um, the um, essence of that is that metaphor music can take uh, realizations into an area that verbal communication can't. Verbal communication, informative communication, is great if you want to send a rocket ship to the moon you have to know calculus
2: Hmm. and
3: calculus is an unambiguous form of communication uh, that is rhythmic but to be happy to be connected to be to do teamwork to be curious to be creative these are all states and they can't be uh, transmitted through an algorithmic approach They have to be transmitted to a mean creative device that allows the person to go.
2: Oh, aha!
3: I got it. Mm. So if we go use evocative methods to help somebody realize the message, the induction just primes. Listen, you don't can respond to the content. Oh, you can respond to the meaning,
2: Mm. and that's Mm -hmm. the
3: purpose of the induction is that you're going to tell a metaphor or a story or use other some other evocative device and you want to alert the person to respond to the level of meaning and not to the
2: nation.
0: Yeah, yeah. can you hear me, Jeff? Yes, perfect. Okay, great. Um, the, so it's funny because as you were talking, I was trying to look in my mind for an example and then I, and then I re, and then I realized it's not so much the example that i'm looking for of of content it's the state in which people are together that you're really trying to elicit in uh in a in a trance state it, it's not i mean the content hopefully will become manifest um as they look at things but it's really the state of openness curiosity that you're trying to encourage um it in the in a situation in a couple situation
1: because
3: some states are individual like attending you don't need anybody to attend or to concentrate you don't need somebody there some states are contextual if you really want to feel awe come to the grand canyon you'll feel awe
2: mm-hmm. and
3: some states are relational like cooperation and teamwork and marriage these are relational states so uh how can you promote relational states well you can do that by transitioning a hypnotic state into evoking a more resonant relational state mm-hmm.
2: mm, great
0: how are
3: we doing on time because okay we've got another five minutes
0: or so five minutes okay great uh could can you um can can you talk about actually you know what you're you're a little uh pixelated I'm just can I call you back real quick actually let, like? uh, let's see how do we do this I'm gonna end and then would will I you so. will you uh let's see I'm not quite sure how to do this
2: uh,
3: uh, I can leave the meeting and come back you stay that there. would be
0: great can you do that yeah thank you for. Let's let's try that. And we're back. Hello.
2: Hi. Better.
0: Better. Um, okay. Great. So in our in our last five minutes, you. Can you talk a little bit about sort of uh, putting people back together at the end of a trance state and what you're thinking you want to happen after they leave your office?
3: Well, um, you know, the, as part of the process would be to offer what I would consider a process instruction which in a very rudimentary form is that you use the hypnosis to develop a resource. And then you give the person metaphors, anecdotes, directives about how to use the resource that they have developed in their life. Now, whether you have to cre- to connect the dots or not is a therapeutic choice. You know, with uh, a child, uh, you tell them the meaning of the fable. If you listen to the story about the rabbit and the hare, you have to know slow and steady wins the race. But when you're dealing with adults, connecting the dots can be an annoyance because people like to create their own meaning. So um, I don't have a formula for what the person does when they leave the session. And um, these are heuristic processes, not algorithms. And a heuristic is a simplifying assumption that you know from experience is apt, but not in a cause and effect way to lead to a positive result. So um, that's part of the artistry is to uh, understand what you know, you can't know what the evocative moment is that any client will take away and institutionalize to make their life better. You know, when I was with Erickson, just being around him and seeing somebody who triumphed over adversity was so inspiring that he could have recited the telephone book and I still would have had an inspiring experience probably I would have found out something about the telephone book that I'd never realized before.
2: Mm.
3: And uh so so um the the closing of the encounter, um, you know, to me who's like an internal medicine doc, so when you go to the medicine, internal medicine doc you don't go every week. You know, you go if you've got a twisted ankle or if you have a cold then you go and you come back month, week, three years later. So my type of therapy is uh, is uh, to to commit myself to be somebody's doc over the course of their life cycle or mine and uh, not to have somebody who is in the trenches every week. But if somebody wants to see me every week and have room in my schedule, I'm glad to do that for some period of time to help the person get whatever it is that they need. Um, losing weight or uh, overcoming an addiction that might not be something that can be accomplished in one session but sometimes with a phobia sometimes with a habit like smoking one session can be enough to help the person to accomplish what they need but maybe I will follow up with email or a telephone call or something that makes me present and Caring about what happens to them in their life after they're finished with the therapy session, but I don't have a protocol or a series of homework assignments that I give as a matter of course.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, so my, I got so many questions for you, but I I want to respect uh, our time today, and um, I'd like to give you an opportunity at the end. Just if people want to learn more right. about your work or um, the the um, Erickson Foundation, hypnosis, trance, where do they get that?
3: Well, the foundation is primarily an organization that is oriented to psychotherapy, not specifically to hypnosis, but we do have training programs called intensives. And we just finished one. I also have a class called a master class that I do around the world that's limited to 12 students that's completely experientially based. You can find out about my trainings on JeffreyZieg.com or J-E-F-F-Z-E-I-G jeffzei com and the Erickson Foundation, Erickson-Foundation.org. We organize a brief therapy conference, a couples therapy conference, the Ericsson conference, the Evolution conference, and we're primarily a continuing education organization, but we also have, like you attend, intensive training programs three times a year, limited to 25 people that we have in Phoenix. We have a press, we have books, we have audio tapes. If you go to Ericsson. If you go to the Erickson Foundation site, you see our store, our newsletter. We have a museum, the historic the Erickson Historical Residence. If you're ever in Phoenix and you wanted to see Erickson's home, we have that available. So there's many more functions of the Erickson Foundation that I could mention in a brief period of time, but we have something for everybody. So if you go to erickson-foundation.org, find something that you'll be able to use to advance your practice regardless of the discipline or number of years of experience you have. The next conference is in December in Phoenix, which is the 13th Ericsson Congress. We have a couples conference in April in Northern California, brings together people like Stan and experts in relationship. And then in December 2020, we have the Evolution Conference, evolutionofpsychotherapy.com, as you said, the Woodstock of psychotherapy.
0: Where is that going to be this year, or in 2020? Anaheim. Anaheim. Anaheim, okay.
3: December. I think December 9 to 13 in Anaheim in in 2020, and we have an incredible array of remarkable speakers. So you you know this is sampling, so you can see best. Vandercock, or you could see Don Meichenbaum, or you could see Otto Kernberg, or uh, any of the other remarkable experts that we have. And the evolution conferences give impetus to integration in psychotherapy. When we started them in 1985, it was more about who had the best Um, lens for focusing on psychotherapy but now the experts have become increasingly interested in looking over the fence seeing the artificial turf and saying well we have artificial turf like that on our sides of the fence too so the evolution conference adds impetus and plus we invite experts like poets and movie directors and actors and um, composers to talk about social critics to talk about the relationship between therapy and the world that therapy is a metaphor good communication i'm doing a remarkable program uh, i'll make one plug in 1440.org 1440.org in october and i am doing a program with rob Capillo who is a composer, who is a super genius and remarkably kind human being. And so music is a metaphor, psychotherapy is a metaphor. What are the evocative elements in each and how can you use those to improve your communication? If you're a doctor or a lawyer, an Indian chief, a parent, a child, so that uh, is a program that I'm very much looking forward to because we can learn more about advancing our discipline by cross-fertilizing from others. Jason, you did a great interview. I've been thank interviewed you. many times and you were very paired with very interesting questions. And I hope I met your needs. But a oh, you totally you so did. I,
0: your availability, your Jeff, your availability is really uh, remarkable and um, so appreciated. And uh, hey, I look forward to seeing you again at all the wonderful things you do.
3: It will be a pleasure.
0: Okay. Thank you so much. Until next time. Bye.
3: Okay. Bye-bye.